from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. We know now that in the early years of the 20th century... This world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's, yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small, spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, minds that are to our minds, as ours are to the beasts in the jungle, Intellects, vast, cool, and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. If, like we are doing here, you look at the UFO era in the United States as a developing modern legend, then one of the protagonists is Alan Hynek. Hynek, who we met in the last episode, was the consulting scientist for Project Blue Book, and in that capacity was deeply involved in the early years of official investigation into UFO reports. But what really makes him noteworthy in this context is that he went from a vowed skeptic at the beginning of his work to, if not exactly endorsing the view that extraterrestrials were visiting Earth, certainly making the case that the UFO phenomenon was real and required scientific scrutiny. I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 6, Quicksand. In 1949, 
Joseph Campbell, a professor of literature at Sarah Lawrence College, published his opus of comparative mythology, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. In it, he described a type of folk narrative he called the hero's journey like this, quote, a hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man." End quote. Campbell thought that mythic tales across cultures and time followed basic narrative patterns. One of these was the hero's journey. I'm not going to make the case that Alan Hynek is a hero in the usual sense, though I know that many people consider him to be just that. But the way that his career has been positioned in UFO lore adheres to the hero's journey story. He is called from his job in the ordinary world, enters the strange world of UFO encounters, and emerges with a message that UFOs are real, even if he doesn't know exactly what they are. So it's this journey that we are going to follow over the next few episodes how Hynek's outlook towards UFOs changed, and how that coincided with the winding down of Project Blue Book. Hynek's story begins in Chicago, where he was raised by his parents, who are Czech emigres. When he was about eight years old, he had scarlet fever, and he was a voracious reader. He read every book in the house, and his parents would go to neighbors to ask if they could borrow books from neighbors. Author Mark O'Connell. And one of the books ended up being an astronomy textbook. So Heineck read that from cover to cover, and he was completely entranced by the world of stars and planets. And he, he says that at age eight, he was pretty sure that's what he wanted to do with his life. And then he, you know, he went to college and studied astrophysics and became a professor of astronomy, uh, first at the Ohio State University, later on uh, at both Harvard and then at Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois. So his, his whole life was pretty much a straight shot between getting that astronomy book when he was sick in bed at age eight and then going to, you know, being a, a really successful and very, very well-known and highly respected astronomer in uh, the fields of academia. But it's his work on UFOs that he is best known for. Here's Heineck in a 1968 radio interview on WINS describing how he came to consult with the Air Force on UFO sightings. When and how did you first get involved with UFOs? Quite by accident and by propensity, really. Uh, I happened to be teaching astronomy at Ohio State University, which is just a few miles from Dayton. And when the flying saucer um, era really began in 47 and 48, the responsibility for checking it out and, and monitoring it was given to the Air Force in uh, Head Wright Field. And they needed an astronomer to um, help pass a judgment as to how many of the reports could be uh, attributed to meteors, stars, planets, so forth. And I just happened to be a handy astronomer. And uh, I, well, you might say that one thing led to another. I became interested in some of the really oddball cases that clearly didn't have an astronomical explanation, and my curiosity was aroused as to 
how those might be explained. Hynek was contracted at the beginning of the Air Force's investigation into UFOs, when it was known as Project Sign. He came in with the assumption that the job of explaining away UFO sightings would be relatively straightforward. And this turned out to be true in the vast majority of cases. As part of Project Sign, Hynek looks through this stack of UFO reports, and at the end he comes to the conclusion that he's able to explain away about 80% of these reports. They're either misidentifications of the planet Venus, or the star Arcturus, or it's a meteor shower, or it's a sun dog. And the leftover 20%, he's not too concerned about those, because he feels like, well, if I had enough time and resources, and I had a staff working with me, we could probably get to the bottom of those other 20% as well and explain them away. Heineck did his work for Project Sign, got paid, and that was it for a couple of years. During that time, Project Sign became Project Grudge, then Project Blue Book, the name it operated under until the Air Force officially ended UFO investigations at the end of the 1960s. But in the early 1950s, the Air Force realized that they needed Hynek again. The director of Project Blue Book comes back to visit Hynek at the university and says, hey, guess what? Those UFOs that we all laughed about a couple years ago, they never went anywhere. We still have stacks of reports. And because you did such a good job with this two years ago, we'd like to rehire you to, to do what you did last time. Go through all these reports and explain away as many of them as you can as genuine astronomical events and objects. And Heineck accepts the job and he starts going through these reports. And again, he's able to explain away about 80% of them pretty handily. But it occurs to him that, wow, this is now like three plus years since I first started looking at these reports. And there's a very consistent 20% year after year that I can't explain. This new collection of data showing that 20% of cases weren't easily explained changed Heineck's thinking a little. He no longer assumed that if given time, he'd be able to explain them all away. Heineck started thinking, well, I need to start looking at these in a different way. I need to start looking at these as sort of a scientific puzzle and applying scientific research methods to, you know, trying to determine what these things are. So Heineck decided that he would look at those 20% of cases that he wasn't able to explain. Those became his focus on Blue Book. And he began to try to direct Blue Book's resources towards focusing on those cases specifically. But these cases were not the priority for Heineck's bosses in the Air Force. Heineck came to feel that his attempts to focus resources on difficult-to-explain cases were stymied from above. The exceptions were a small number of cases that broke through to the popular media, newspapers, or the nightly news. There'd be so much pressure on the Air Force to come up with an answer that they would reluctantly say, okay, go to Albuquerque, okay, go to Ann Arbor, figure out what happened and take care of it. Albuquerque was the Lonnie Zamora case that we looked at in the last episode. Ann Arbor was an even more confounding case, one that would change the trajectory of Hynek's journey into UFO investigations. 
In March of 1966, there was a wave of UFO sightings that were concentrated in southeast Michigan, but were part of a a larger wave, almost a three-year sort of peak of sightings that sort of swept from northeast Ohio all the way up to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and Wisconsin. Host of the Saucer Life podcast, Aaron Gullius. And in March of 1966, there were sightings in southeast Michigan centered around the communities of Dexter and Hillsdale, uh, Hillsdale College in particular. And the sightings began at the, the family farm of a man named Frank Manor. Frank Manor owned a farm in the town of Dexter. On the night of March 20th, his family saw lights coming from the swamp near his house. One night, a farm family saw some strange lights in the swamp down below their house, and the father and son went out to find out what was in the swamp, and they ended up seeing all sorts of strange lights that were moving around strangely, seeming to hover or lift off and then settle back down again. The lights would disappear from one part of the swamp and reappear in another part of the swamp. From WJR Radio in Detroit. 47-year-old Frank Manor, a farmer, and his 19-year-old son, Ronald, said they approached within 100 yards of the strange object sighted last night. They said it lay in a swamp and had pulsating lights on each end. Manor said it was fitted like coral rock and about the length of a car. He said its shape was like that of a football. Manor said his son then said, look at that horrible thing, and the craft vanished. They called the authorities, and the uh, the local authorities in Dexter came out and took statements. Reports went out to the local newspapers, and the next day there were people sort of camped out waiting for uh, another sighting. Washtenaw County Sheriff Doug Harvey investigated the scene. Although he was unable to find any evidence of a landing, the sheer number of reported sightings had him convinced that there was something in the skies. Here, Harvey talks with newsman William Harris for Detroit radio station WJR. Sheriff, as I understand it, you've just completed an investigation on the scene of the sighting last night. Uh, what did you discover? Uh, we found nothing out there. Uh, there was no indication, no evidence of where it had come down, where the Mr. Manor said they had come down, where my officer stated that the area would have come down. Also, uh, the Geiger counter picked up nothing. There was no uh, flat grass, flat brush, or anything that would indicate something had landed there? None whatsoever. Do you have any theories as to what this might be? I wish I did. I wish I had some answers. I, I don't. I uh, was a little doubtful at first. My first sighting, this was on the 17th. We sighted the first one my men did. But again, on the 18th and then last night. But now we've got too many people, too many trained officers have also seen this. So I, my doubt is gone. I know they've seen something. What it is, I don't know. So while the manor sighting attracted news coverage, it wasn't an isolated incident. Others had seen lights or even objects in previous days. You had a number of people, including sheriff's deputies, seeing things in the sky, not just lights, but also sort of structured craft, sort of football-shaped things with what was described as a a quilted surface, almost like a waffle pattern, antenna sticking off it, and, and lights around the edge of the craft. And these craft were you know, like nothing the witnesses had ever seen. And then came another sighting that seemed to erase any doubt 
that something was going on after the break. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't get distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. In the spring of 1966, southern Michigan was hit with a rash of strange sightings, including ones with multiple witnesses. But there had been no mass sighting, an event witnessed by a large group of people, an event that could not be brushed aside as confusion or misinterpretation. But that changed on the night of March 21st. There were a number of young women in a dorm at Hillsdale College not too far away, who saw some strange lights in the sky. And, you know, it was one of these mass sightings where you have dozens of people seeing the same thing at the same time. So you got like 87 women in this dorm all looking out of their windows at these strange lights in the swamp down below. And they call in the, uh, the county civil service agent and he takes one look at these lights and says, well, that's obviously a vehicle. That's obviously a spaceship. <laughs> of course, he had, no, he had no basis for saying that, but that's what he said, and that was the you know that was what the story became was wow we've had these multiple sightings of spaceships in Michigan. That county civil service agent was William Van Horn. Here he is talking with WJR News. To be on the surface of the Earth uh, on the ground, uh, however, I don't feel that it was because. It moved very freely uh, from left to right and right to left at various times, which uh, uh, it would be impossible for any type of vehicle uh, on wheels or on the ground to uh, move uh, that smoothly because of the uh, fogginess and the uh, marshy portion there. But uh, at the time that I first observed it, we say that on the right uh, was a quite uh, a dim orange colored light and to the left uh, was quite a uh, kind of a dim white light. And it was a, uh, approximately uh, 25 feet in between the two lights. Uh, now I was observing this with binoculars and uh, at this distance after dark, it's pretty hard to uh, estimate the distance there. It would at times rise from uh, its position just over the surface and upon rising, the lights would become more brilliant. 
Airlines, and at the time, uh, from our municipal airport here, we had a beacon which was uh, throwing a beam of light, uh, as a beacon does around the area, and this uh, vehicle seemed to go up, and as it would get up to a height of approximately 100, 150 feet near the uh, bottom portion of the beam of light, it became stationary, and then uh, would uh, descend back down. In other words, it was appeared to me as if uh, it was attempting to... Uh, Among the 87 student witnesses at Hillsdale College was Josephine Wilson, an 18-year-old from Cleveland. Well, I never believed it totally at all. But when I saw it, and I saw the three things it did, it wasn't anything horrendous. I mean, nothing that, like a big ball of fire in front of your eyes. But it, it was very strange. And after watching it for two hours, and seeing it hover around and change lights, et cetera, and seeing it glow. Um, I don't think I'm going to laugh so much from now on and say that definitely, definitely is no such thing as UFO. Remember in last week's episode when the Robertson panel expressed concern about the possible psychological effects UFOs might cause? They were also concerned that the Soviet Union might be able to use UFOs to manipulate the American public, to instill panic. Here, in Michigan, seemed to be a case where these concerns might become a reality. With this many people seeing UFOs in a small area and over a small period of time, how would the public react? There is a long history of public officials being afraid of public panic. My name is Jesse Walker. I work at Reason Magazine. I wrote The United States of Paranoia, A Conspiracy Theory. And I also wrote another book about the history of radio. And the interesting thing is that in that Cold War moment, I mean, a little bit later than what you're talking about, I think, some sociologists uh, went to investigate how people behave Um, in natural disasters, you know, sort of the classic time when um, people expect mass panic. And they found that, you know, panic is rare. People sort of move towards cooperation. Crime declines, usually, (laughs) as opposed to, like, the orgy of looting. I mean, there's a few times there's been, like, looting and stuff that basically amounts to a disaster coinciding with a riot. And, you know, further follow-up studies looked at this in other contexts, you know, like, um, you know, technological disasters and so on. In other words, studies eventually showed that a full-on public panic was a very unlikely outcome, regardless of the circumstances. But this wasn't known when the Robertson panel issued its report in 1953. In 1966, while studies of the sociology of disaster were underway, the conclusions were not well known. The fear of mass panic was still real. A lot of folks also, uh, at that point, still believed the myth of mass panic after the War of the Worlds broadcast. So in 1938, um, there was a special Halloween edition of the Mercury Theater on the Air, which was Orson Welles's uh, radio drama program, and they did an adaptation of War of the Worlds. The enemy is now in sight above the Palisades. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading, wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. A bulletin has handed me 
Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be timed in space. Now the first machine reaches the shore. It is widely believed that it set off a mass panic. You know, people running out into the streets being afraid that the, you know, the world was coming to an end, basically. Several people reported to St. Michael's Hospital in Newark, New Jersey for shock. A Baltimore man died of a heart attack. Car accidents. Panicked people in the streets. None of these things happened. The story of the reaction to the program is an urban legend, the one that was briefly promoted by the popular press. Now, later on, scholars went back and found that no, most people did understand that it was a work of fiction that they were listening to on the radio. Of the people who did miss the announcement at the beginning and that it was a play and who thought they were listening to a real broadcast, most of them thought it was an invasion of Germans, not Martians. It got sort of played up a lot. I mean, in part because it was newspapers who didn't like losing audiences to radio and wanted to be able to, you know, cast radio as this uniquely new threat. And in part, you know, it just sort of fed people's fear of the masses in general, and this idea that people are just easily manipulated um, by a demagogue with a microphone. And of course, Orson Welles was, you know, happy to have this story going around that he was such an amazing storyteller that he had, you know, the country panicking. I mean, that, I mean, in addition to being, you know, a, a great, you know, popular artist, Orson Welles, he understood show business. As the stories of the Michigan sightings made it into the national press, the questions began. What is the government going to do about it? Are they going to investigate? In this environment, Alan Hynek pressed his boss, Captain Hector Quintanilla, the head of Project Blue Book, to be sent to Michigan to try to determine what was happening. First, his boss at Project Blue Book said, no, we're ignoring this. And Hynek was very frustrated. Well, a little while later, he gets a call from his boss at the Air Force again. He says, all right, go to Michigan. The press attention had made not investigating an untenable position. They were embarrassed by their inaction, and so they decided they had to do something. So they sent Heineck to Michigan. And in Michigan, Heineck encountered the case that would be the turning point of his career, the confrontation in his hero's journey that would eventually bring him back to the public with a new message. Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeart3D Audio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. And special thanks to Wendy Connors, creator of the Faded Discs archive of UFO-related audio on archive.org. Learn more about Strange Arrivals over at GrimAndMild.com. And find more podcasts from iHeartRadio by visiting the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... 
Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.